0: Matthew twenty six forty seven through 56. While he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servants of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your swords back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would Scripture be fulfilled, that it that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets must be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Well done, Matt. That was Matt personally, ladies and gentlemen. He is... He's one of the elders here. He's been part of the church planning effort from the beginning, just a faithful guy. Him and his wife, Aliyah helped lead this church along with my wife, Sandy, and I. And um, he just read from Matthew 26. We're gonna be finishing Matthew in a matter of like six weeks. Uh, Next month, uh, my wife and I and our kids are going on vacation. You're gonna hear from some incredible speakers, both in this church and from our broader network. And it's gonna be a really cool August, I think, for that reason. Very, very excited. Wish I could be here for it, but we're gonna recharge. Um, So uh, with these six last teachings, this is, for the most part, the cross. So July and a large part of August is preaching Christ, and him crucified, literally, from the Gospels. Um, at this moment, the moment Matthew just read, Matthew personally read from Matthew, <laughs> the moment Matt just read is, is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, a torch-lit olive tree grove, uh, and this grove actually still stands. I've been there, Garden of Gethsemane, it's a beautiful place. It's you know, memorialized, there's a cathedral next to it, and it's just kind of awesome. There's 900-year-old trees that still stand there. And uh, just to imagine Jesus in this moment on the east side of Jerusalem weeping and beginning his suffering, 24 hours of hell, literally. Um, and so he starts it in this moment where, where Jesus would be crushed. So remember, Gethsemane, we talked about last week, Gethsemane means olive press. The place olives would be crushed into oil by ancient Jerusalem people. Uh, And so Jesus is being crushed in the olive garden, so to speak. He's being crushed, and out of him is pouring the oil of life. So oil in those days was food and healing and uh, light. They would use it for all those things. And Jesus is becoming, in this moment, our light and our food, the thing that would heal us, like our medicine. Um, so, so now, in Jesus' final moment with his disciples before he dies, he's willingly coming to Gethsemane to be crushed and to begin his crushing journey to the cross where he's allowing himself to absorb our brokenness. That's where we're at. It's heavy, it's beautiful, it's saving. Um, so what we're gonna see is, uh, first slide, as human betrayal and violence presses in on Jesus, that's him being crushed for us, as that happens, What comes out of Jesus is blessing and forgiveness toward all humanity. And that's what heals us and brings us illumination. And and this is Jesus' final sermon, so to speak, with his disciples, his literal final teaching moment. At the start of Jesus' ministry, Jesus calls these disciples to himself. And Jesus commits his life to training them. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Remember, the word Christian wasn't a thing. There are no, there's no Christians in the Gospels. Did you know that? You ever thought about that. There's no Christians when Jesus was alive. Jesus wasn't a Christian by name. Uh, there was no Christian culture or subculture. Uh, the word "Christian" came up way later as like a political derogatory slur by the enemies of Jesus' disciples, and it kind of stuck. They're like, oh, a little Christ? They mean it as like a slur, but like, we love being little Christ, so we'll take it. And it stuck. And it became our name and our title and our, even our, the name of our faith, Christianity, for a long time. But before then, I mean, Christian only shows up three times in the Bible, the word. The main word is 257 times. It's disciple, which is like our word apprentice. Think of an apprentice under a master or under a professional carpenter, an apprentice watches every move and picks up all the little idiosyncrasies of its master. So that's, that's who Jesus is creating, a community of apprentices, not people who just call themselves Christian or join a Christian faith per se, uh, although that is what we do. Jesus is creating a community of learners who would do what he did and teach what he teaches. And so so this is a point for today, a big one as we get into the weeds, because this one's heavy. The point is, a community of Jesus followers doesn't just believe what Jesus says. A community of Jesus apprentices or followers also commits to doing everything Jesus did by the power of the Spirit. That's why Park Hill is a church. You can go to our website. We're practicing the way of Jesus together in San Diego through gathering and scattering, like Matt said, and serving and giving, our four pillars. And so we do it by the power of the Spirit together. And that's how the church does it everywhere in their unique context, okay? So as we come to this text, we're coming as 21st century San Diegans for the most part. We all bring our own histories and origin stories and religious presumptions to the table. And as a community following Jesus, because that's what we claim to be, then it's essential that we gather every week like this to allow ourselves to be shaped by Jesus as we submit ourselves to his teaching and his authority. We come under the authority of Jesus as Christians and we say, Holy Spirit, come, help us become more like Jesus and do what Jesus did. And that transforms us to our core as we hold one another to that account. That's why we have communities. So before we're Westerners, before you're American, or French, uh, or any other label, if we pledge our allegiance to King Jesus as Lord and Savior, our primary identity is not Republican, Democrat, fill in the blank. Our primary identity is son and daughter of God, whose kingdom transcends all governmental powers and national cultures and all of that. Our American values, our French values, our Republican, Democratic values submit to the values of Jesus. We submit them to Jesus. That's what we do as a church. That's what the church is. An outpost of his kingdom, first and foremost. Okay, this is all kind of like prefatory comments because Jesus goes right to the jugular vein in this final moment with his disciples. Uh, this is what we see Jesus saying and doing. Okay, you ready for this? I'm going to just boom, 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 the, po- the points of what we see in this text. First things first, in the very moment he's betrayed, Jesus calls his betrayer friend. Like not before, not in principle, not just like, hey, when you're betrayed, call them friends. No, he's like, in the moment he's being betrayed, he calls him Friend. Uh, This is Jesus' disposition towards his betrayers. And then the next thing we see in verses 51 and 52, in the very moment of his arrest, Jesus rebukes Peter. We find out it's Peter from John's gospel. He's not named in Matthew, but we know it's Peter. He rebukes Peter for misrepresenting him through violent defense of Jesus, saying, quote, put your sword back in its place, for all who take up the sword will die by the sword. And picture him being arrested. <laughs> like it's a commotion, a violent commotion with swords and clubs, and Jesus is taking a teaching moment <laughs> in this moment to teach this. It's pretty intense. And 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 then the next thing that happens is that we see Jesus remaining confident in his father's authority over his enemies, refusing to violently resist saying, do you think I can't call on my father and he'd immediately put out 12,000 plus angels at my disposal? Don't you think that I have that intimacy and authority? And by the way, Luke's account has Jesus actually healing the ear of his enemy mid-arrest. So this is a powerful moment right now, the final teaching moment with his disciples before he dies. And he grounds all of this in God's goodness, his Father's goodness, and his Father's authority and care. It's not just an abstract principle, it's all getting fleshed out in the moment. And so Jesus is demonstrating, not just through teaching abstract principles, but through lived example, through his final message, that the best way to fight violence is not with more violence. The best way to fight evil or injustice or personal betrayal or that cutting comment or that trolling tweet or whatever, the best way to fight is not to return, the painful gossip, it's not to return the favor and it's not just to stay silent, it's actually to reach out with blessing. This is the Jesus way. This is what Jesus does, so it's what his followers do. He suffers and yet he's self-sacrificial. He remains cross shaped, (laughs) forgiving and blessing and loving his enemies. And so the question we talked about a couple weeks ago, where did Jesus get this kind of confidence? And Jesus tells us twice in this passage. Jesus sees himself and his life as fulfilling the scriptures, and he trusts what the scriptures teach. So we trust them. We trust the Bible because Jesus did. And so to sum up what this text is gonna mean for us is Jesus is calling his disciples, couple slides forward, there you go. Jesus is calling his disciples to love our worst enemies And, and on the way to rest in God's goodness when we are wronged and ultimately to trust the scriptures in all of this even when the things the scriptures call us to don't make sense because this is what Jesus did. And remember, it's important to keep in mind, this isn't just some one-off like side soapbox that Jesus had. He like, by the way, I wanna talk about enemy love. Um, No, in fact, scholars point out how central this is to Jesus' message. Scholars have pointed out that this whole scene we're looking at called the passion, Jesus' crucifixion narrative, it's actually Jesus practicing what he preached in the Sermon on the Mount. There's so many parallels. Um, And and so it's all, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, we went over it last year in spring, it's been a while, but it's all about how Jesus' kingdom people are supposed to practice Jesus' way in a messed up, greedy, violent, broken world. And so I have a table chart thing that I want to show you. Just, just, I don't want you to take my word for it. The proof's right there in the text. Look how it flows. So the left side is the the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching, and the right side is his passion, how he's practicing what he preaches. And so in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you have Jesus saying things like, blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who actively make for peace when they're persecuted. And then look, at the beginning of the Passion Week, Matthew has it structured so that Jesus is doing just that. In the moment he's being persecuted, he's calling his betrayer, Friend. And then Jesus goes on in the sermon earlier in Matthew, do not violently resist an evil person. It's a good translation of that, that Greek word for violent resistance. Do not violently resist an evil person. And in chapter 27, Jesus, the one with 12,000 angels at the snap of his fingers, he, 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 he invites, really, he allows... People to repeatedly strike him on the face. He's practicing what he preaches. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of chapter seven, the middle of chapter seven, Jesus says, the Father is good. This is all grounded in his goodness. So much so, he'll respond when you ask. Ask the Father anything. And then what does Jesus do on the cross? Jesus asks in the darkest moment of his life. He he asks. He does exactly what he preached. Father, why? You're good, so why? It's not like, why? I hate you. It's not a fish shaking. It's God, your goodness is real, so what's up? Where are you? What's happening right now? He's asking his father. And then finally, how does the Sermon on the Mount end? If you remember, Matthew 7, Jesus does that whole parable of the wise builder and the foolish builder whoever does what I say is a wise builder. So he's like, do whatever I say. And then how does the passion end? Jesus is on a mountain commissioning his disciples, saying now you go and teach others to do everything I say. So the parallels are pretty stark, actually. This is intentional literary technique on the part of Matthew to show us Jesus practices what he preaches, and then he commissions followers to practice what he preaches and to teach others to do the same. It's pretty pretty powerful actually. This is ancient literature inspired by the Holy Spirit and it shapes our church and every church. It's amazing. So um, Matthew's holding up Jesus' words and deeds and saying this is the way to fully flourish as Jesus' people in the world. This is it. This is the way to true power This is the way to true power in the world. And to sum it up, Jesus demonstrates the paradox of true kingdom power. The way to true power is actually through giving it up, surrendering our right to defend ourselves, and and instead, loving our enemies, our worst enemies, and trusting in our good Father for every outcome. This is Jesus. And again, it's not just some one-off teaching from Jesus in a catalog of nice Jesus-y sayings. Um, The idea of counterintuitive enemy love is picked up by the rest of the New Testament authors as well, and they hold it up as central too. Just look at Paul here. Here's Paul in his letter to the uh, the Christians in Rome, actually, the Roman Christians. He says, bless those who persecute you. Sound like anybody we know? Paul's just... Passing on what he received right there. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, and then, and then Paul does one further. He says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. So it's not just not acting violently, it's actively blessing. We need the Holy Spirit for this. Hardest stuff ever right now. So on the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And <laughs> some of you are like, oh great, there's some violence we get to do or whatever. <laughs> but that's not, that's not what that means, that's a, that's a Jewish idiom, it's a figure of speech that actually means something totally different, we'll talk about it some other time. Um, and then the final line, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's Paul. So the New Testament authors hold this up as central. So here's Peter. Here's Peter. Okay, remember the guy who hacked off the ear? This is him later on, far more mature in the spirit, saying this. For it is commendable, it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, there it is, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, and, and here's Here's the story. Peter tells the story. Next line. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. So hopefully we're getting the picture here. Again and again, Jesus and the New Testament writers, they're claiming that the best way to fight violence is not with more violence. The best way to fight evil and injustice or when you're wronged and you didn't deserve it at all, it's not to retaliate, and it's not only that, but it's to extend self-sacrificial, cross-shaped forgiveness, blessing, and enemy love. And just to repeat that last line from Paul again, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What would that look like in your life today and all your relationships? How would we bring this home? I'm gonna share with you uh, a story that just came out in a documentary last month for a community that brought this home, a community that brought this home viscerally. So a month ago, my wife and I had the privilege of seeing a documentary called Emmanuel. I don't know if you guys have seen Emmanuel. Has anybody seen it? Cool. Um, Co-produced by Steph Curry of Yola Davis and uh, directed by this guy, Brian Ivey. Um, It was a two-night-only showing, 7 p.m. June 17th and 7 p.m. June 19th. Why those dates? Why just two, June 17th and 19th? Well, Emmanuel, the film, is about the Emmanuel Nine, our nine black brothers and sisters in Christ who were shot dead by a young white supremacist during a prayer meeting four years ago in Charleston. At Mother Emmanuel AME Church on June 17th, 2015, they welcomed this young man into their prayer meeting and he sat through the whole prayer meeting and when the prayer meeting was over, He stood up, pulled out his gun, declared his intention to start a race war, and began systematically executing people. This was June 17th, 2015, just two days before the 150th celebration of Juneteenth. So what's Juneteenth? Juneteenth is June 19th. They call it Juneteenth. We call it Juneteenth. It's an important day in the African-American community. It's the oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States, and it remembers the day, June 19th, 1865, when news of emancipation, legal abolishment of slavery, finally reached Texas. And for many Americans today, Juneteenth carries as much, if not more, significance than Independence Day itself. And so on June 17th, 2015, just two days before the 150th anniversary of Juneteenth, the Emmanuel Nine were murdered during a prayer meeting in one of the most historic black churches in the south. That building has stood there for 200 years. This is why the movie had those two dates. It was an intentional message, loud and clear, 150 years after slavery is legally abolished, still unthinkably violent racism and hatred is very much alive within our nation. So I hope you all make a point to see it, highly recommend it. Don't often recommend movies on Sundays, but there you go. The beautiful lives taken and the profound interviews with families left behind and by far the most powerful moment for me, Most powerful moment just sitting there, absorbing this story. Um, the court hearing scene. If you follow the news, you remember it chilling. The family members of the slain were all present, and they're, and they're, all, they're all looking at the judge, and then they're looking at a screen where many of them are seeing their, their family member's killer for the first time and the judge makes this unexpected, totally unplanned move. No one knew the judge was gonna do this and he asks the family members if they want to make statements to the killer, one by one, representing the slain. And the first person that stood up, Nadine, she stands up and she would later say that she felt compelled by the Holy Spirit, (laughs) something beyond herself in that moment compelled her and she spoke these words to her mother's killer. First words out of her mouth. I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgive you. And I forgive you. And something broke open in the room. Judge called out another name. And then a man stood up. And he said, just like what was said, he, said, he says, I, I forgive you. My family forgives you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ. So he can change you. So he can change your ways. And no matter what happens to you, you can be Okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than what you are right now. And one by one, a few more family members spoke directly to this man who killed their mothers, sons, sisters, and brothers, and they expressed profound messages of love and anger, holy anger, and grief and forgiveness over this man. And of course, ha- not everyone was able or expected to even say that. Not everyone was able to, totally understandable. Um, But several did, even begging him to repent and join the family of God that they were a part of. So later on, Chris Singleton, he was the son of a woman who was slain in that event. Chris Singleton went on to be a minor league ball player Later on, he would say this to reporters. After seeing what happened and the reason, he's talking about the killer's intention to start a race war, that was the stated reason for this act. He said, after seeing what happened and the reason why it happened, and after seeing how people could forgive, I truly hope that people would see that it wasn't just us saying words. I know for a fact that it was something greater than us using us to bring our city together. And in this moment, the the intention of the murderer was being completely upended. What he he designed, sadistically designed to do, was being thwarted. And the community began coming together, the opposite of what the murderer was expecting or intending. And Singleton continues, he says this, The narrative of forgiveness is submitting and that means you're weak or people think that. But I've realized that forgiving is so much tougher than holding a grudge. It takes a lot more courage to forgive than it does to say, I'm gonna be upset about whatever forever. So church, this is the paradox of kingdom power. The kingdom of God comes into the world not through retaliation or vengeance or defending my rights versus your rights. The kingdom of God that Jesus leads us in comes into the world through a community that is empowered by the spirit to suffer while forgiving and blessing like Jesus So the example of the the Emmanuel AME church community is beautiful and radical and extreme and inspiring and transformational, all of that. But the example of Jesus in Gethsemane is even more so. Our Lord Jesus' example in Gethsemane is the ultimate model, the paradigm for our brothers and sisters everywhere who suffer injustice and suffer well in Jesus' name. This is the upside-down power of the kingdom. It's nonsense, it's nonsense. Counterintuitive, by worldly standards, by the standards of human society that typically push society forward. And this way of Jesus, it's it's through Jesus' act, and it's also through a community like us, like every community over the world that chooses to be filled by the Spirit to change the world through Jesus' way of living as his apprentices and his spirit empowerment. So Paul says it this way in his letter to Corinth. He says, for Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Next slide. And he says this, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What does that mean? Our enemies are our neighbors. Our neighbors are called to be our brothers and sisters. From now on, we don't regard people by the, tribalist, the tribalism of the world. Though once we regarded Christ this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us that ministry of reconciliation. You see that? So that last verse, 19, God was reconciling the world to himself. All of his enemies were being invited in and then God says, see what I'm doing here, now you go do. This is the ministry of reconciliation. He's committed to us that, menace, that message and that ministry. So we often think of Jesus' death as giving us personally a way of salvation, right? Like we believe Jesus died on the cross and he's forgiven me of sins, I confess and I'm saved. And that's true. But what we don't often talk about, because we're so individualistic, we don't often talk about the communal side of the cross. That, that Jesus, not only does it open a way of forgiveness for me personally, um, but according to Paul, and Jesus also passes on to us his same ministry of dying and forgiving. Dying and forgiving. And he says, okay, look what I'm doing. Now you guys go do this for others. Without exception. The hardest stuff in the world. This is Jesus' most radical teaching by far. When you're wronged, not only do we not react defensively, but we also actively and creatively bless. <laughs> Good Lord. When you're being betrayed, we, we work toward reconciliation. It's, this is the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus' followers are people whose lives and community are shaped after Jesus. Shaped by a totally innocent person who was betrayed and tormented, while forgiving his tormentors. Good, like I. I this is definitely the most visceral example of me standing here preaching <laughs> um, a message I need to hear. And I'm holding on to that statement. If, if a you know, if a pastor can only preach what he's practicing in full then he's, he's only gonna ever preach too low. You know what I mean? Like I'm, this is a high. This is Jesus' bar, and I am a work in progress. So where do we go from here? We're gonna come to the table. We're gonna come to the table in, in a couple minutes. Um, and as we do, I just wanna make one last observation to bring this home, okay, personally for all of us. Here's the observation. It's significant in the story of Jesus' suffering, that this whole arrest and beatings and whippings and all of that, this part of the story starts with Jesus calling his betrayer friend. Before his phys- just to kick off all the physical suffering, the very top of that, Jesus calls his instigator friend. I'm going to read the text. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Judas is so many levels of dysfunction right now. Just so messed up. He could have just had a torch and said, there's Jesus, go get him, give me my money, and just normal, Uh, but instead he had to do this whole hypocritical kissing act. Didn't have to do that. (laughs) That's just like next level, over the top. He apparently wanted to maintain some kind of fake righteous persona in front of the other disciples. That's the only thing I can think of. This is nth degree evil right now. But but let's, let's own this. Let's be honest, are we any different than Judas when we put on a mask for other Christians while betraying Christ? Are we any different? Whatever that looks like, willful greed, deception, sexual immorality, just willfully sexually immoral. And by the way, a lot of us don't know what sexual immorality means anymore these days. It means sex with someone you are not married to. So, so, or getting drunk, or whatever, whatever it is, when we as Jesus followers are living intentionally in willful, unrepentant opposition to the way of Jesus, and yet we're acting like we're cool with Jesus in front of Jesus' followers, is that really much different than what Judas is doing? Same category. The same category here. After reading the scriptures for like, I'm 38, I've been reading for like 30 years, I'm getting the feeling that the New Testament, half the goal of the New Testament is to help people see how good Jesus is, and once you confess Jesus is good, the other half of the New Testament's goal is basically to get Jesus followers to live what they confess. Because otherwise, what's the point? That's just Judas. It's like, hey everyone at church, look, I'm kissing Jesus, I'm showing up. Well, there's this entirely different reality going on behind the curtains of your life. And the scriptures offer zero security for that kind of double living. And, and listen, I'm not, talking about a lot of, I'm not talking about the Jesus follower who just keeps struggling with sin, honestly confessing, bringing their failure out into the open in healthy community. Listen, that's exactly what church should be. Like, if that's you, welcome. This is what we do. Like, there's endless mercy and grace for everyone who admits their need of healing and forgiveness and is open about their brokenness. That's not the double life of Judas. That's just a struggling sinner slowly getting saved and welcome to the family, that's what we do. Judas, on the other hand, this story of hypocrisy is a different animal. This is a massive warning for so-called followers of Jesus who are content living in willful, unrepentant opposition to Jesus' commands while pretending like everything is okay. And Jesus' words are chilling for Judas and for Hypocrites. It's chilling. Look what he says. Jesus replies, do what you came for, friend. Do it. Jesus just lets Judas do his thing. This is Jesus handing Judas over to Satan. The New Testament would later describe it as that. Chilling. Yet the silver lining always, Jesus still calls Judas friend. And that word friend in the Greek, it only shows up in Matthew three times. It's very interesting. You know when it shows up, that word friend is is Jesus calling people friend three times. And guess guess who it is? It's, it's always people who appear close to Jesus but are inwardly, hypocritically opposed to Jesus every time. Here, here's, the, here's the proof. In chapter 20, to the servant who secretly complains about God's generosity to other servants, Jesus says, hey, friend. And to, in chapter 22, to one who wants to be in God's kingdom but refuses the terms of the king... That's the whole wedding, coming to the wedding, but not wearing the king's clothes. Jesus calls him friend. And now to Judas, in his moment of false love and betrayal, Jesus says, friend. Notice that pattern. This isn't just Jesus loving his enemies out there. This is Jesus choosing to love even when it gets personal. This is Jesus opening himself to you, the most hypocritical of us, me. He's opening himself to you and me, to the, to, even to those of us who claim to follow Jesus while also giving in to doubt or hatred for others or willful patterns of behavior that are damaging to others or ourselves. In that moment, in the moment of our rebellion or our hypocrisy, even then, Jesus' posture to you is reconciliation. Hey, friendship is still an option. Friend, Jesus is standing ready to forgive and restore a relationship. All we have to do is admit our need for his forgiveness and healing. So if that's you, and you're here in this place, (laughs) I don't know what what patterns, what behavior, what what this is resonating in you, but hear Jesus tell you, for a long time I've been saying, do what you came for, friend. But I've called you friend the whole time, (laughs) and reconciliation is always an option. Friend. Some of you here need to get real with God. Like we talked about last week, opening yourself up, your true emotions, your true desires, even your wrong desires. Like Jesus was like, I don't know if I want your will, God. Some of, some of us, some of you, need to, need to open yourself up to God authentically today. And to get real with God and the community of Jesus about your inner life and hear Jesus call you friend and respond in faith. Even when the scriptures are telling you to do something that doesn't quite make sense to you. This is the way of Jesus. Surrender to Jesus as Lord of the world, the God who became human to endure our suffering we dished out to Him and and then forgive us. And now He's shaping a worldwide family around that ethic. So, as we come to the table, what would it look like to surrender your whole life to Jesus? What would it look like for your relationships with your spouse or with your parents? or with your kids? What would it mean for the way you spend your time and your money, what you do with your body? What would it mean for your relationships? Let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us as we come to the table of Jesus. Because as we're eating and drinking, we're eating Jesus' death for us. We're being brought into a community that dies for others. Surrender. Let's become that kind of community that is shaped by, by our suffering yet forgiving king. Can we stand together? We're gonna to sing a song that just invites the Holy Spirit to come and then we're gonna open the tables. We, you guys, we cannot do this without the Holy Spirit. There's no way. And he empowers us and enables us to do just this. to become the community of the paradoxical love of Jesus for his enemies. Holy Spirit come, shape us, shape us we pray. Before we come to the table, let's just invite the Holy Spirit into those questions. What would surrender mean for your life and your relationships?